We acknowledge that we live and work on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai Nation and that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that we benefit from the colonial structures and policies that remain in place today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people and recognise their ongoing struggles in dismantling those structures. During the First World War, strikes caused fuel shortages so severe that the Victorian government reopened the old brown coal mine near Morwell in the Latrobe Valley. And the state government has outlined a long-term plan to ensure the Latrobe Valley remains viable as its economy moves away from coal-fired energy. It's been the lifeblood of the Latrobe Valley for decades, but continual change in the power industry and the introduction of the carbon tax means it's time for a plan B. It's a month tomorrow since fire entered the Hazelwood coal mine in Victoria's east. Fire has been burning for weeks now, blanketing the township in a toxic smoke. The housing estates are literally just 50 metres away, so when the wind blows in the other direction, they take all of that in. The guillotine has finally come down on Australia's dirtiest power station, Hazelwood. It's caused jitters about electricity prices and raised questions about Australia's readiness for a low-carbon future. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. The Latrobe Valley's coal mines could be filled with water and made into a tourist attraction to rival Italy's Lake Como. Welcome to Coalface. My name's Jason Hess. And I am Stephanie Sabrinskis. Hi, Steph. How's it going? Hi, Joyce. I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I uh, heard that you had a little bit of the old big C. I did. Wait, no, that's cancer. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew coronavirus. I had the COVID, yes. Um, I was very sick. I was out for two weeks, pretty much. Oof. And I still don't feel quite right. You're just ready to talk about the environment and themes of art. Look, like, when aren't I ready to talk about the environment and art? I'm always ready. <laughs> honestly, peak COVID, you were sending me links to research. Exactly, so, do you yeah. you were doing that? You were, like, in a COVID haze being like, have you read this study? And I'm like, no, Steph. <laughs> Also, you have I kind of don't, but I, it does. It sounds like something that I would like, do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would do. We have a special framing for today's episode. I almost was going to call it a mini sode, but you know what? It's so good. It's just an episode. And ep- just an episode. Yeah, just it. a full, like a normal classic. Like a. Yeah. Do we have enough episodes to be like this is a classic episode? Uh, maybe. No, no, not quite. Not quite. This is our fifth. So why don't you, for the people listening at home, how about you set up the framing? What's oh different about it? Thank you. Um, I feel like you've done this before, <laughs> maybe five times. So we, you and I, got to go because basically, look, I don't want to say but i will we're basically celebrities at this point <laughs> um we're being treated to like the works essentially in our hometown of like latrobe valley area we were so graciously invited by latrobe regional gallery to come check out their exhibition hazelwood now i know what you're thinking that that entire exhibition it seems like exactly perfect for us and I want to thank them personally for putting it on for us. I, I felt like it was, it was <laughs> right at the right time that we yeah. needed to see this exhibition. Yeah. It just so happened. So maybe we're like manifesting oh, no, I think we- reality and no. Yes. So number one, everyone go to the Latrobe Regional Gallery and look at some art. We'll get into the details of why that is important later in this episode, but I think number one, this is a giant ad for the Latrobe Regional Gallery. So not sponsored, but definitely sponsored. Yeah. <laughs> So we were fortunate enough to get to go on a little tour of this Hazelwood exhibition. So for those playing at home who maybe aren't from the area, we have touched on what Hazelwood is before. Steph, do you want to kind of just give us the 
overview of what, not the exhibition, but what Hazelwood means down here. Sure. So Hazelwood was a power station that was decommissioned in 2016, kind of spontaneously, kind of not. There's conjecture about that, but everyone knew it was closing down, but no one realised it was going to happen when it did. Hazelwood was also one of the oldest power stations that was still operating. Crispy. It was very crispy and um, filled with asbestos, I must say. The bestest. The- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's fine. And um, also there's a mine, obviously, that Hazelwood mined from. Let's set the scene. Do you want to describe for our fair listeners what the Latrobe Regional Gallery looks like, where it's situated, and, like, the vibe when you walk in? Sure. So from my recollection, I believe that the Latrobe Regional Gallery used to be a courthouse or some kind of other historical building. Some kind of municipal city, yeah. city hall. Or the old police station. Just, it, it swimming was pool. Not a swimming pool, My but house. it was like the courts or the cops or some mm-hmm. shit like that. It's like an old historic building. It's two stories. You kind of, when you're driving in to Moel from the Rose Garden side, the first thing you notice is like a big white building on the right. And then there's like some kind of fancy um, metalworks yeah, over the top. It's sculptural it's, as a building. It is. <laughs> it is a sculptural building. <laughs> uh, architectural. People would say that. <laughs> yes. So, and then uh, you've got to walk. Well, you know, if you park on the left hand side, like we did when we arrived, you've got to walk down to the. You have a full Josie and Steph experience. They do, yeah, to the pedestrian crossing. And um, then you've got to hold hands as you cross the road and when it's green, obviously. Oh. And while you're holding hands, you've got to slip your middle finger up and then just stroke the palm of the other person. Just to, like, get it. Is that a power play? Like it's, oh, no, it's just, fr- just friendly. Just friendly. Okay, cool. Yeah. Maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. I don't recall. <laughs> if you're kind of on a slight angle, you can see the entryway desk, like, where the people sit and be like, hello, how's it going? They are so friendly. They are so I- friendly. Yeah. And then next to there is, like, your hand sanitizer station. So That's you can so go to your hands and then there's also like this little kids area where you can take your kids to like go make art in the art gallery what also strikes me when i walk in that building is the warmth of the wood and i know like mm. that it's always kept at a certain temperature because like art has to be cool or warm or something do you so, perhaps know this from your time working at the art look, gallery i don't want to say i have a conflict of interest but i am basically <laughs> the lord of all yeah. art gallery no i was a tech there for a short amount of time in the early whatevers and i just remember that I never had to wear a jumper. Nice. <laughs> we were fortunate enough to get a special tour of the Hazelwood exhibition. But today's interview is with David O'Halloran, who is the senior curator at the Latrobe Regional Gallery. He walked us through the exhibition and largely this recording that we're going to be listening back to is his extra information that he gave us about the exhibition. But as you know, Steph, because we were both there, he also raised some sort of really broader issues around like the importance of art, the role of art in changing minds, the role of public spaces. So we're kind of going to get deep into the digging into like the sociological kind of necessity of space and art and all that good stuff. All right, so the first clip I'm going to play is David sort of explaining to us about the painting and it kind of gives, just so you all know too, right, like the reason it kind of sounds art gallery-ish is because we did it in the art gallery. We're really like kind of cultural explorers at this point and I think we should feel really proud of like going on site and recording like that. Oh, that was like my first in-site interview or on-site interview, sorry. (laughs) Uh, And it was really cool though. It is pretty echoey there. Yeah, so so just a heads up that the audio is a little echoey and you'll hear sort of like the background sound of the exhibition. So just ignore that and listen to the words because they're real good. So this is David speaking all about the Hazelwood exhibition. Wow. So this was in Hazelwood, is that right? 
This is, yeah, this was in Hazelwood. My understanding is this painting was situated in like an underground walkway that the, once the workers parked their cars and to get to work they walked through this walkway and this painting was in the walkway. The, the painting was commissioned in 1994 for the 30th anniversary of Hazelwood. But the, and the interesting thing is that the, the painting is based on photographs that were provided by Hazelwood, and some of which are, we've got on display. But the painting was painted by a prisoner at Morwell River Prison, um, called, a guy called Jerry Zabenko. Um, and Hazelwood River Prison was, was really quite a, a low-security prison, um, and most of the prisoners were involved with replanting and planting of trees and forests. But Jerry uh, obviously had a painting background, so he created this artwork. The kind of the history of Hazelwood from its beginning as kind of farmland through to, you know, the dredging, through to thinking about... Um, at the far end, how they imagined the future in 1994 <laughs> with some of the things that we're still talking about, like very fast trains, and there's an electric car on the far right as well. <laughs> so this is very much in a kind of a, in a sort of a Soviet agitprop style. It is, isn't it? Holy shit. Um, it's about 20... That's so Chernobyl, it hurts my brain. So I am going to get you, he just mentioned a thing called agitprop, which is the amalgamation of agitation and propaganda. So I got this definition from Tate Modern Museum, and I'm going to ask you to read it out. Oh, yes, I love it. Agitprop is an enterprise set up by the Soviet Communist Party in 1920, intended to control and promote the ideological conditioning of the masses. The term is now used to refer to any cultural manifestation with an overtly political purpose. Are using it in this? I think it's interesting if you have an agitprop-style piece commissioned essentially by the company and the workers themselves to then hang in the hallway on the way to work. What does that mean? Look, I think, <laughs> honestly, it, it's creepy to me. It feels like, yeah, they just, like, I don't know, using that kind of style in a workplace, it makes it propaganda to me. It doesn't make it, it's like, working here is really great. That's it. Like, It's very, it's like, I mean, you know, I don't know this is an intention, but it does have a little, like, dystopian right? workplace vibes. Yeah. Um, I think we should sort of just describe to, like, I think what attracts me to this painting is just the sheer scale. Yeah. It's it's a big boy. Like, that is not a small, but it's 8.5 metres by 2.4 metres uh, in terms of, di- like, not diameter, that's a circle, but size. Length and height. Yeah. Yeah. The classic measurements, yeah. as you know. So that's, it's, it's, and when you kind of come into the art gallery, it runs the full length of the back wall, which is like a huge, you know, wide open room. So you really kind of get the sense of the scale of the piece. Mm. And I imagine like, and David talks a little bit about this more and in the interview, but it was hanging in sort of the walkway where the workers um, would enter and exit the power station. So they're kind of like going past this every day. It's really interesting because David and the research team at the gallery or the curatorial team at the gallery were speaking about how it's kind of a mystery. So they have the record of him painting this huge agitpop style thing. And obviously with the last name like Zabenko, we're thinking maybe there's a connection there that his family might have been in the Soviet like area at the time. So maybe he even learned that. Like, again, that's not confirmed facts, but like it doesn't seem impossible given the timeline. 
The more the actual mural was organised by Eileen Jean, who was the office prison visitor at Moore River Prison, and was also on the organising committee, how convenient, with her husband, Ken Jean, a Hazelwood employee. So that's how it sort of came to be. But when you think about, like, this guy who, again, they will talk a little bit about, like, maybe what crime was committed, but, like, he's not a violent criminal or anything. He's just, like, at this prison barn, you know, being asked to paint this, like, huge 8.5-metre mural that's now sitting in an art gallery. Like, what a yeah turn of events and like who is this man? like was he paid to do it I or like know. I doubt it I think it would have just been part of his you know con- contribution to society from this so it, it's I wonder then how you would evaluate that piece of work like that obviously is value to it we are like are certainly not art art guys yeah but I would imagine that some of the value is attributed to the historical significance importance. and importance yeah. yeah I know I just love that that's the history and like that's yeah. who made this artwork so we're gonna hear a little bit more now from David about about Gennady and where he came from and possibly like how it all came about I haven't really been able to find out a lot I believe he's passed away I found references to him in a in a Melbourne eastern Melbourne art society uh, in around 2000 as being there president at the time uh, and I reached out to that group but they'd lost track of him and I don't know if they knew and I think I think he was in prison for fraud for defrauding the Commonwealth I think that's what it was but it, uh, I think it was some kind of business development grant that wasn't quite used in the right way I was wondering if it was like, did he lie to Centrelink? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, yeah. So, but I haven't really, you know, I don't want to say too much and get it wrong yeah, and no, defame yeah, him. Sure. But um, yeah. that was what. That's what I haven't been able to really find out How much. But yes, and I haven't really been able to connect up with his family. But I've done, you know, I've gone down Google rabbit holes and Facebook yeah. rabbit holes to try and find out that. Um, I haven't really found out very much. I did go down some Facebook rabbit holes. So, okay, what I want to do now, I've made a map of the painting. So just to describe it a little bit as well, right? So this painting sort of goes from the history that it runs sort of left to right. And if you follow it, it's sort of like the whole history of Hazelwood, which like, I don't want to overstate, but gets me going. I'm like, wow, that whole painting is all the history right in one place. It's like, it's their history, I guess, we have to keep in mind when we're looking at history. Like, who wrote the history? Who banned the history? So we have to keep in mind that, like, this comes from, you know, the organisation itself. But I think that's extremely telling on its, you know, itself. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to bring up my little drawing. Um, and this is from a little bit of Facebook sleuthing, but also research from the Latrobe Regional Gallery um, team who very kindly provided us a bunch of information. This is about the people who were in the painting. We're going to, like, go through and figure out, like, who's who and what's up with that. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm, like, covering my face to stop myself from talking. All right. So we're looking at uh, a picture of the um, painting. Do you want to, for the people at home, kind of maybe just try to describe not who's in it, but just, like, the biggest strokes? Like, what are we looking at? What does it look like? Sure. So we've got about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight panels that are all connected together. And it's, like, the beginning of the SEC to the end of the SEC in 1994. So the first thing that we see is like a horse and cart on like some soil. There's some people in construction hats. 
looking at a, a map of some description. There's a waterway coming through. Then we see a dredger. Then there's some scientists doing some scientific studies of some description. That leads us to a coal conveyor belt, which is connected to a giant fist, which kind <laughs> the of... Fist the, best. the fist is the best bit. And it kind of acts as the center point of the painting, but it also breaks it into four unique kind of sections. So the top section is the power station itself and we can see a lot of water. Side section is what I was just describing, which is like the the ground and the dredger. Below it, there's the wild, some wildlife, some people at a control panel, some boats on the water. And then there's a really important section, which is what the electricity made at Hazelwood has the capacity to power. So we can see a whole city. I think it's the city of Melbourne. We can see some ladies doing some baking. Um, typical women. Typical women in the fucking kitchen. Am I right? <laughs> and then there's a light globe in a hand that uh, that's, that's the weirdest bit. Anyway. I love that bit. Like, what's that about? It's, so, but it's coming like from the fist. It's yeah, yeah. like, is it the other person's hand coming out of the fist? Ew. I don't know. It's it's confusing. And so all along this whole panel, like there's also a car, I should say, and like a few cars. Oh, the greatest. It looks like Homer Simpson's car. It does. <laughs> but so all throughout this painting, there are like little framed p- pictures with people in it. I quickly do is we're just going to quickly go through do the people who are in the uh, painting in the little frames just because I think some of them are like long-term plays and stuff and it's good to kind of just be like, okay, who was the power station trying to show were like the primary players in its own understanding of its history. So on the far left, do you want to describe that fella? Well, when I, uh, when we were at the gallery and I Google lensed, it said it was oh, like, JFK. No, it was like, it was like Roosevelt. No, who was the guy all the way with LBJ? It was LBJ. Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> is it Barrett? Well, it's Lyndon B. Johnson. So that's who it looks like. If you know who that is, that's what this guy looks like. It's like in a sepia toned kind of picture. It's not Lyndon B. Johnson. It's not. It's Vern Ripper. <laughs> and he was Hazelwood's first power station superintendent. There we go. Beautiful. Yeah. Then we've also got, let's describe this guy. So he kind of just looks like your standard white guy in a hat. (laughs) There's a little contention about this one. So Latrobe Regional Gallery actually says Campbell Houston is the guy under the security gate in the painting, but the Facebook group for Moral Historical Society thinks it's this guy with the hat. So Campbell Houston is on this picture. I'm just not quite clear which guy. Maybe he's there twice. Maybe. Possible. But um, Campbell Houston was the chief engineer slash construction engineer or um, 2IC of Latrobe Valley Project. Sure. Up there as like an engineer. So he's represented. Do you want to describe this bloke? Uh, We've got another kind of classic white guy with white hair in a blue tie, a blue suit jacket and some glasses. He's got like a nose and a chin and stuff and some ears. Yeah, typical face, face, classic face. And it's on a bit of a brown background and it's right next to the image of the city being powered and above the women in the kitchen. So I don't know that there's a connection between him and the women, but this is another contentious one. So Latrobe Regional Gallery says that that person is Bert Mee who was the first station operations engineer, but the Facebook uh, Moral Historical Society, which again, it's Facebook sleuthing, so I'm not sure how uh, reliable that would be, says that that person is actually the SECB chairman from 1956 to 1971, Sir Willis Connolly. Interesting. Yeah. You know, someone correct me if I'm wrong. If you're Bert, me, or Sir Willis Connolly, let me know in the comments below because maybe that's you. (laughs) I'm not sure. Maybe. Um, You want to describe... 
this powerful <laughs> Okay, so it looks like Robert De Niro. Um, no, no, Danny who's the DeVito. Danny DeVito? That's what I meant to say. It looks like Danny DeVito, um, but science Danny DeVito. So That's he it. is definitely like putting shit into beakers and cooking things over. Bunsen burners. It's maximum science. It's very like it is. science. Yeah. So that's Mac Dent. He's a station scientist. Wow. Yeah, he's doing that's probably yeah. what's with the science. With the science. Thank I you. wonder if he looked like Danny DeVito in real life. Um, so. Or it, is it something to do with his arm being above his forehead that we can't see his hair and it makes him look like Danny DeVito because he's yeah, kind of bald? He looks like Danny DeVito in It's Always Sunny and Yeah. Like yes. But I, I love that for a sign because like, I feel like Same. that hair definitely must help with the science. I think. Definitely. What about this person? So now we have another science guy. Uh, he is looking through a microscope. He's kind of like a ready-haired, bearded fellow, also white, also wearing a blue, it looks like it might be a boiler suit, not a shirt. There's like a little painting in the background and it looks like it's of a tropical island with like a palm tree. This fellow is David Addis. He's the environment officer. He worked in a lab, huh. worked with contracts and monitoring the plumbage. Apparently there's like a story that we were told that they got him to pose all science Like I'm sure he does use that, but they were like... From the video, yeah. yeah. Pose more science So that's what that picture is kind of reflecting. And apparently that's a, a poster of Hawaii in the background. Amazing. Which I think must have been in the office. So for you deep environment officer lovers out there, that's a tidbit just for you. Yeah, that's yeah. The, uh, poster art that they have up in the office. Do you want to describe these two gentlemen? Sure. So basically we're looking into a snapshot of the power station from The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, where Homer Simpson goes to work and there's the that. The parallels are endless. They, they really are. Um, and so there is like a guy standing at a bench with lots of buttons that looks like the desk that Homer Simpson stands in front of. There's another guy standing on the other side. Looks like maybe he's overseeing. And the person that's standing at the desk is like turning some knobs. He really is. He's yeah. like that button guy. So behind the cold, uh, control panel, which that's what that is, apparently it's a control panel, uh, is Ken Jean, and he's a charge engineer. And on the front of the panel is Scott Gillespie, unit controller, stage two. Amazing. Stage two of what? I don't know, but probably something. Yeah. So they look very like, I don't know. I think it's interesting. So then we also got to note that like um, the three ladies and the gentleman with the young boy are yet to be identified. Mm. <laughs> so I think typically women written out of history. Who, who are they? Who cares? Um, <laughs> no, I well, I care obviously, but obviously, yeah, no one does. So. <laughs> yeah. So we can see this is kind of a slimmer, a slender portrait than the other ones as well. It is. Um, but it's a guy who looks like he's in a really expensive jacket and with a very expensive hat. I don't know what those hats are called. They told me it's a stock hat. A when stock I hat. That, it no. Just comes up with baseball caps. It's not a stock hat. It's like sure a fedora kind yeah. of hat. He's a fedora guy. Yeah. Um, and he looks kind of eccentric so this is alex ronald i believe you know the story we're all like okay yeah Ready for some like urban myth building around morwell what is alf ronald famous for alf ronald is famous for driving his rolls royce around a paddock and feeding the animals in his paddock <laughs> hay out of a rolls royce classic That's yeah isn't that weird so he's yeah actually the person who owned the land that he was built on but yeah apparently he he was like I actually found in the uh, shout out again to the Moore Historical Society, people in the comments saying they remembered maybe going to work with their dad or something and like seeing him. I saw that yeah. too. I was yeah. Like, oh my God, it's real confirmed. Yeah. Confirmed. And I thought this would be a good time to point out as well. We do not, like, I tried to research this before the episode, but we don't know how Alf Ronald acquired the land, but it was clearly stolen from the Aboriginal people somewhere along the line. There's ab- Aboriginal people are definitely missing from this portrait. 
So yeah, but I, I guess anyone who's not not white, white yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, there's lots of white people all over this portrait, and and I guess just to reiterate again, like this painting is obviously like of its time, and it's essentially like a piece from the power industry, yeah, about the power industry. It's, it's the the history of the power industry according to the power industry. Yeah. So yeah, so we just yeah, obviously keeping that in mind. So that's what the art piece looks like. Look, I, so. It looks really powerful. It's a really powerful piece. I know I feel weird saying that because it's about power. Hey, Coalface listeners. In the following clip, I misspoke. I should have named the Briakalung people of the Gunai Kurnai Nation as I know it was their land that was stolen. I will include some resources in the show notes about demonstrating inclusive and respectful language when referring to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, as well as some further reading about the Gunai Kurnai Nation. Back to the episode. But it really is. And, like, you can see that from the raised fist and the way that they've, like, I don't know if I've said that there's, like, lightning bolts or electricity. Did you forget the lightning bolts? Like, just pumping out of that fist or whatever. But It's uh, charged. It's charged. Yeah, it is fully charged. I mean, also the fist is such a democracy. It's such a people power. It's such a... Yeah, it's the wrong way around, though. So, like, Mm. that that way, I don't know the actual symbolism, but the sign, like, for revolution is a clenched fist that way. This This is up. So, I don't know. It would be interesting to know the difference and also just going to point out that there's like a power station at the base of the hand which mm-hmm. I only just noticed I feel like it's one of those images the more it's you look at it the well. more you'll see yeah yeah I think that's the thing so we'll definitely check it up but it's it's got so many little pockets so many little I mean every I got the opportunity to film it for a project we're working on in general and every frame of this is a painting yeah. in itself like that every little moment is like its own little vignette or little story yeah. and I think that's why it's so kind of transfixing this painting is sort of like the hero piece for this exhibition and David's going to talk a little bit more about sort of reason that he put on the exhibition and sort of the response that the town had because I think about you know a piece this powerful coming out of the industry into the public space so other people can engage with it so David's going to tell us a little bit more about that. So this painting was given to us by Angie the owners of Hazelwood a couple of years ago as part of their kind of winding down of the operations of, of, of the place. And, of course, our collection here at the Trobe Regional Gallery has a lot of artworks that talk about industry and coal-powered power stations. So it's a really important painting for us to have. And what we've done with the painting is we've wrapped historical material around, around it to give it a kind of a broader context. But really, you know, I think... Most people understand that the coal, the coal is at the end of its useful life in terms of an electricity generation, and I think most people uh, accept that now. But the issue now is now what, and how do we provide a transition that continues to provide employment, continues to build build a future for the people that wish to stay here, that wish to have their children stay here. You know, it's it's a complex issue when you shut down such a large industry and we all know why and we all understand its importance of why, but there's a lot of people to be taken into account and, and, and their families. So um, we've tried to kind of talk about the valley through another exhibition next door and we also tried to think about the people by providing this historical material. 
We also had recently a morning tea where we had about 40 former workers come and chat to each other about working. And it's a group that's been going for some time that they meet, I think, every couple of weeks or once a month to talk about their work at Hazelwood. And it's a way of keeping that keeping that connection together, but it's also a way of looking after each other to make sure that they're kind of all healthy and well mentally as much as anything else. So it's not something that's been driven by the gallery, but the workers themselves have put that together, which, which is fantastic. So it just reinforces the kind of the human dimension. What he's sort of talking about there and what I interpret from that, like Morwell feels like it's got kind of like a healing that needs to happen. And I don't know if you want to tell everyone about, we also were invited to a talk at the art gallery, but I think the talk, it was fascinating, had heaps of like um, interesting points, but it was the first time for me, maybe that I had the fact that it isn't a monolith of people being like, SEC was perfect and good. So do you want to kind of describe? Yeah, I I can in fact do that. So yeah, as you said, we went to the art gallery and there was, uh, I think a panel of three people and also a, an MC, a moderator. And so the MC was asking everyone their questions. And, um, there was quite a few older people in the audience who had been, who had worked at the SEC. And when it kind of came down to question time, um, quite a few people stood up and said, uh, had like were, were trying to have their say about their experience in the SEC. And there was one gentleman in particular that said something along the lines of that was all well and good for you working in head office, but for the workers on the ground, it wasn't a cushy job. It wasn't so easy, comfortable and all of that sort of thing. And he talked quite a bit, but I was just getting, my COVID was hitting, so I don't recall, <laughs> but it did, it really was striking to me that he was there with a negative experience. Yeah. I think it, it, it's a diverse, there's a diverse pool of opinion there. And I look, if anyone from the SEC is listening, we'd love to talk to you. Like we, we always say this and maybe no one will ever contact us, but please like coalfacepod at gmail.com, like get fall into our inbox or whatever. Like we'd love yeah. to chat with you. I know this is like, we all know this about history, but it is all about like, who's writing it? Who's like, you cannot have things without bias. We cannot have stories without narrative structure, you know, and shaped through people's perspectives. But it does feel like every time I'm reminded of that, I'm always surprised where I'm like, oh yeah, there's of course there's people who didn't have positive experience. Yeah. Of course it's not this like dreamy, like it's, you know, history is complicated. People's perspectives are complicated. But I think what struck me was that, the gallery had facilitated what felt like a very necessary public um, trauma and, like, that feels like there's more that needs to be said. I would love to have, like, I think you could even do it at, like, Kernot Hall, which is, like, a big hall. It's like a porny town hall. It is. It totally is. (laughs) But I think it would be great to have that and just have invite people who are from the SEC or from the power industry and just have everyone come and have their say. Have a moderator there. You can, like, write your name down if you've got something to say, but, like, a public town forum about it because I think you're right there and saying there's so many people with this trauma um, about this experience and even like when Hazelwood shut down yes. all the people that lost their jobs when they weren't expecting to lose their jobs yep. just yet and all of that so I think that that is definitely something that we need to make a space for um yeah and yeah it was like this exhibition maybe it did the first but it definitely was more of a large-scale public yeah way to have that start but if you aren't able to have your history recorded I mean often people feel you know unheard well, I think that is the case everywhere. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, still, if you, 
you can be invited and still not feel welcome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting to find a way to facilitate that where even perspectives that are maybe not the mainstream yeah. are able to be heard, but then you've got that complexity of like platforming. So exactly. I'm not sure the solution. Yeah. I'm just some guy. Yeah. All yeah. I know was going to that talk, super interesting, and a lot of like powerful feelings were like oh so many I wasn't expecting to like feel sadness when we went and I I distinctly remember particularly when this gentleman who I don't know the name of was talking I felt really sad well he was Um, talking about and I mean like maybe we can cut this out it's not yeah but he was talking about like the physical toll yeah on his body and the consequence like he's now a much older person like maybe 70 or 80 living with the physicality of someone who had to do really repetitive tasks with not a lot of insight and I think Knowing how rigorous, I mean, again, I imagine there's still corners cut and things like that, but knowing how rigorous all that health and safety and OS stuff is now, I can only imagine what it must have been like. Oh, the then 60s people still get killed in the power exactly. station today. Yeah, so we like, mustn't forget like these are dirty and dangerous. Yeah, parts. they are. Like, <laughs> I don't like again sitting in our office doing our little podcast. Like it's so easy to be like, what? It, like uh, you know, just, just turn to make it safe. The or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what's interesting. Like all of the people in this painting are doing like mm. no one's doing any like no one's like reaching no out one's doing the back-breaking work yeah. and so to throw back to our episode with Haley, where we talked about Haley's grandfather and my grandfather a bit too like Haley's grandfather literally was like manning a shovel a, a right. shovel and taking the shovel out of the ground that's back-breaking that's work back-breaking. I don't know if anyone's dug a hole before but as someone who lives on a farm it's I've cooked. had to dig a hole and it's cooked and like yes. there's a reason people are buried in shallow graves it's because digging holes hard. is hard, it's so hard. like whoever invented that like yeah that the dredger, dredger or the digger yeah I know yeah but there is that a whole like <laughs> yeah there's a whole lot of people that wouldn't have had that even cushy thingy and my my grandpa went deaf on the dredger so yeah, yeah. like yeah yeah so I guess like good stark reminder of that history isn't always you know the yeah. obvious story and that listening to these other narratives is definitely eye-opening and very yeah. important and a so on a completely wild pivot I want to talk about climate change. Yay! So I think <laughs> is this distressing? Yes. Oh, it is. always, always <laughs> distressing. So uh David's gonna speak a little bit about the impact of climate and sort of like uh in his previous clip we saw we're talking about you know what's next. Mm-hmm. Here's what he has to say about that whole picture. Cool. For us, this exhibition is a bit like a marker. This time has passed, you know, the kind of language that's used in that video about the wonderful nature of coal and generating power for Victoria and Australia, that language is now gone. And so this exhibition sort of, for us, puts a kind of a line in the sand. And downstairs in Gallery One, there's an exhibition that uses solar and wind power to generate a different kind of activity so there's some, you know, there's some musical notes that are played through lights lighting up solar panels. There's a fan imitating um, the wind power to generate some flapping of it, flapping. And there's magnets, and that's meant to be like a metaphorical look at this is a kind of wit and invention and creativity that we now need. To, to move forward. So that exhibition's timing with this is not an accident. When I went with my nibblings, like they loved this piece as well. And we went to the upstairs and they weren't so keen on that. So I didn't spend a lot of time there. It was a bit too above their it wasn't like pay grade. They're like five and four. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, it wasn't moving. It wasn't sound. Yeah. But 
even like with the lens of going with my nibblings, I did not connect the two. Like it, it, and it wasn't until that conversation where I was like, oh my God, it's like it know, is on purpose. Know, you know, you don't have, like when you're just a, a patron, you don't yeah. think about that stuff. But here I wasn't like about the thought plan. I'm like, oh my God. Obviously. Yeah. And which is brilliant. Um, so good so work. Smart. Good work. Yeah. Next, David's kind of going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics, poverty tourism. Woohoo! Love me some poverty tourism. Wow. You know, this particular exhibition has been very popular and, you know, to, the best way of promoting exhibitions really is to get people to talk about them because word of mouth is, has been very strong on this exhibition. And, you know, one of the things that sometimes happens here is that we will have artists come to the valley to do a project and they'll come, they'll, they won't have any kind of real understanding of the valley or that, and they'll say, oh, we want to do a project about the industry here and it's always raises a little bit of a yellow light for me you know like don't come here and tell us how bad this is (laughs) yes you know don't treat us like we're kind of exotic victims that it's actually far more layered and complex than that and our art collection's got a lot of work about industry and I think for us, we perhaps might not do a lot more work about the coal industry and the mining industry. We might be trying to kind of look to other things now. Um, So we might start looking at, you know, uh, environment, water, uh, the land through another kind of lens. It's kind of time to move on. Don't come and treat us like exotic we say exotic victims exotic victims yeah, yeah I mean, wow like, like beautiful exotic <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah I thought that was a really interesting point I think it is as well and I think that's like that's kind of why we're doing this this is why we've started talking about the place that we live yes because of this same thing people coming and talking about our place I feel like across all of our episodes now we've spoken to people across like all industries of like science and engineering and now the arts and they kind of take touch on the same thing without prompting right so they're speaking about the idea that you know don't you come here and tell us how to live our lives but also like the town does know it's not like we're not aware of yeah. what's going on right we're not like you know what's great cool. we can we're living awesome. it <laughs> yeah we're living yeah. through it so yeah, I feel like that now is like a common theme. Yeah, I completely agree. And like, also to caveat that some people do want a new uh, power station to be built for the purpose of coal. And there is like nuanced discussion about that as well. But like, we know that the power stations we have can't keep going um, yes. as a general rule. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of the power stations, David next makes this like really interesting point about the importance of the iconic chimneys. So I'm going to talk about that and I feel like we'll have to discuss. <sighs> You know, we've put the video up of the chimneys coming down, the eight chimneys, and we've put this exhibition in a gallery that's got eight columns. Mm. Um, I mean, as a lot of people in Morwell did, when those chimneys came down, you know, I was on the roof of this building looking at it, and the police next door were up the top of their, on on their roof watching it, and cars were by the side of the freeway watching the chimneys come down because those chimneys were iconic for anyone who's grown up and lived in this area. It's kind of like a a marker of home Mm -hmm. and you know where your home is in relation to those chimneys. So for those chimneys to come down is, is, is kind of taking part of 
people's identity away. Obsessed. Obsessed. Absolutely. Someone just is like nails the point so succinctly. Yeah. What you're trying to say. So I think we've touched on the chimneys a little bit before, but it's also they feature heavily in the Hazelwood painting. Obviously, they're the Hazelwood chimneys. There's eight of them. And as you roll into the valley, they used to be so prominent on the landscape and now they're gone. Totally gone. And I'm still not adapted to it. Like my mind still thinks they're there. Yeah. You can um, look up and you expect them to be like, you could see them from the yeah. street. You could see them from the art gallery. Yeah. Uh, and a shout out to my hairdresser. Um, when I was um, telling, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Antoine Hair and Trafalgar, they're great. Um, but when I was telling uh, them what I do and that I do this podcast, their story of how they had like 50 people over for a party in their backyard to watch the smokestacks fall yes. came up. And like, that's like a story that we've heard before. Yeah. It's a massive deal for our area to have these things no longer there and the question of like what to replace them with and now we've got like the wind farm approval for in that similar locations that's going to be an epic change it feels very against my nature to be like oh man i missed the start of the power station I was like, are we like Stockholm syndrome? That was good but it's so i think we just grew up with it it's such an iconic thing on the landscape that obviously i'm not like yay coal industry but also i guess it was like the symbol of, I guess, home for us as occupiers of this land. Yeah. Uh, Look, and I think that's bang on. And it isn't about the actual coal station, but there's something about, like, the industrial wasteland, like the, oh, sorry, industrial decay or whatever of it, like that you just kind of get used to it. And, like, I remember, for example, I used to live in Morwell, as everyone knows, and then I moved to Footscray. And there was something about Morwell and Footscray that's really similar. It's like, um, like, it's kind of multicultural. It's kind of, like, concrete And I felt at home in Footscray because I'd lived in Morwell. Yeah. And it reminded me of that. And there's just something iconic about, like, all of this power station architecture and the concrete and that weird yellowy colour that they seem to use in all of the buildings. It is, like, a 60s yeah brutalist side yeah so when I first moved to the city I moved to Hawksburn yeah like basically Turak and I felt so out of place right and I think there's something comforting and I don't again though I don't know if that's like generational trauma of being like we belong down here rather than like we can't make it but there is something comforting about this area like everyone yeah. is like again I don't want to make it seem like it's a healthy and dreamy dream world like, <laughs> it does feel like aesthetically the the structure and the I'm gonna call it ugly but the ugliness yeah and like I like it but it is kind of ugly yeah it kind of works for my it, heart it works <laughs> for me too and it's kind of if I think about going into Myers in the city and the whiteness and the uh, brightness and the lightness stop. of everything it makes me feel fun, like dirty in comparison yeah, like yeah like just looking at my like my yeah exactly <laughs> and I feel like other places are kind of like that but in more I feel like I fit in with the gunginess of it all <laughs> and like yeah. you know that the you already know that I'm obsessed with the tiles that are left from like I bring this up all the time but in more there's like just pockets of old tiles that are attached to shop front still because they've never properly like reworked the fronts it's yes. like always been renovated inside but they're these tiles that I could probably identify from like the 50s onwards and yeah and that I just love that I love there's little bits of history where it's otherwise been yeah like I love that urban exploring and like um rural and suburban decay so I think yeah like being surrounded by that not that we're perpetually decaying and again sure hope and everything yeah but there is something very satisfying about being surrounded by like this Australian gothic 
Totally. Sort of I mean, this whole episode is centered around the basically the healing power of art. I don't want to sound like an art therapist, but I obviously am now. So I'll put my little art therapy hat on. And I feel healed. Yeah, I feel healed. <laughs> yeah. We're going to use some spray paint next. Yes. It'll be really good. Um, we have worked through some anger. Um, David's going to speak a little bit about like the importance of space and exhibitions and how that can contribute to healing. Yeah, I guess it has a role in both of those things. Um, and I guess that also for people who've kind of moved into the district in recent years, it provides a bit of context. Um, for example, I didn't grow up here, um, but when you look at this old video talking about, you know, it's, it's a video talking about how marvellous Hazelwood is and how people should come and work in the Latrobe Valley and what, what's on offer, but there's also a street... There's a scene of people crossing the street which shows kind of more well it's quite a lively energetic town yes. and there's information in there that you know Morwell was the largest town in this area yeah. it was bigger than Taragan it was more vibrant than Taragan whereas you wouldn't have that perspective today I've got like a visual thing I want to do with you right now okay so are you familiar with Pinterest uh, I am familiar with Pinterest. Yes. I want you to just like pin me a board of more well, how you put, think people perceive more back in the day when it was like, a vi- like he just described it as vibrant. I don't know that we would say that now. Right? Uh, we definitely so, wouldn't. Okay. So I'm going to get you to do like, a, like we're going to describe your visual Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the start, you know, after like, you know, some essay, but like, what would you do? And then we're going to get you to do a Pinterest of how you would do the vibe now. So okay. Making like a mood board about like, just, you know, just the vibes. Sure. All right, so on my, uh, like, thriving Morwell OG Pinterest. This is like 50s, this is 60s. Yeah, like- so this is before the building of Mid Valley. There is only one town centre. <laughs> I have it on good authority oh that um, the building of Mid Valley is one of the reasons that the town centre of Morwell failed. Okay, confirmed. Yeah, so, uh, well, on good authority, I allegedly. said. Allegedly. But, no, when you think about it, right, so the town centre is the train station. That's, like, where the town centre of Morwell is. There is two parts of town. On one side of the town is, like, the little laundromat and there's, like, a lighting shop and a bank and there's, like, a little church oh, tree, like, with some little tiny, like, shops or whatever. That's one side. The other side was, like, the hip-hop happening spot where you had, like, your big supermarket, where the art gallery is, where the police station is, where heaps of, like, shops were the McRoberts the book nook the book nook yeah the, the, like the seed store the seed store oh so God. I just learned about oh. McRoberts the um the seed and grain store that's been there for over a hundred years I'm like Josie my notes. I know did you ever get taken there by like your dad to be like I don't know why we ever needed to go there but we would go to get like I don't know rabbit we, food. we would go rabbit. it was so intensely smelly in there it is really smelly in there I went with my mum and my mum would bring in like leaf clippings and be like this plant has a disease <laughs> and the guy who runs it at the moment is like a person who yeah a horticulturalist so he knew about the disease and stuff too so then he'd mix up a thing and we'd take it home and treat the disease but it has been there for over 100 years like it moved from right over right near the train station to somewhere else but yeah the the town itself it was divided first when the train station came through so before that it was like a whole one central town i'm not sure if i can pinterest board this precisely no but we can do this is you've gone off topic like do why mid valley is terrible sure and then then go back you're going to describe some images that would reflect cool all right let's do that so the first division of morel was the train line 
So that divided the town, the town centre into two parts. And then the second division came when Mid Valley got built, um, which put all shops that would otherwise have been in the town centre into this area away from town, which wasn't easily accessible. Yes, it was it's only accessible. Car. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like not good and to the planning. estates that were built there. So it's really terrible urban planning. So now that like Moel's kind of a sprawl, but it it's just no each center. area, yeah, isn't strong it enough to man- manifest on its own. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So I feel like Morwell's golden era, like again for white people, was like 50s, 60s sort of peak before yeah. any of that um, in the 80s and stuff, like with the end of the SEC. So if you were to sort of give me like top five images that sort of depict what you think people, because the way that my nana described it was like, everyone's doing the Charleston in the streets. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. gold right yeah. from the sky. Like, yeah, okay. What so, does it look like? Okay, I'm going to say blue light disco. All right. So there was like a happening blue light disco every other weekend or whatever. I heard that. My mom yeah. said that life was pretty good. It was pretty good. It wasn't the Rainbow life. Room, that's a little later, but yeah. you know, like the there's that pub there that was popping off. There is also like ladies in fancy dresses yes. with shopping bags of more fancy dresses. Yes, it wasn't so casual. Maybe. <laughs> no, not so casual. Um, well, that's, yeah, I think all eras bygone, they seem fancier or whatever. Like yeah. you had to dress a certain way. Churches were really big too. Yeah. Um, so like the Sacred Heart Church was built in around the, the 60s. And that you was, tell, that's yeah. Brick stuff. yeah. And there was the Sacred Heart School. So like churches, schools, shopping, People yeah. doing the Charleston in the street, blue light discos. <laughs> what else we got? Uh, probably not horse and carts, but like fancy, fancy as fuck cars, like yes. really nice yeah. Ford cars. It felt like there was money. Maybe, yeah. And like possibility. Yeah. Then there was White City, the perfectly White City. Wait, what? Um, so White City, as it was known, was an area of workers' houses that were built before, like kind of in the same architectural style as your lawn, um, but they were workers' houses and it was known as White City. And so my grandparents, like, lived in a house in White City while they were building their house outside of White City. Then it was all demolished for coal as well. So Really? Yeah, they they bought it up at the talk we were at. So, yeah, yeah. It seems like another one of those instances where the town planning was really good and then it just freaking went yeah, to shit so. like it and then they just stopped so plan- like, you know thinking it through nah. yeah like when you get bored of your sim city state, yeah like, oh, you know when i put the poo plant right in the middle of town yeah i'm just gonna Let's take all the happens. doors away and see what happens <laughs> <laughs> there's no fridge anymore yeah yeah all right so paint me the picture of the pinterest board if more was a vibe today Oof. what are we thinking okay so <sighs> I am gonna. This is going public, so I know I'm really considering that. <laughs> yes. In my talking, okay. So there are a lot of empty shop fronts. There are a lot of failed businesses or whatever in the town. There are also little pockets of gentrification. <laughs> there are fancy, fancy people closed stores. So then there's like like some art galleries that have popped up and coffee shops that have popped up. But then there's also like. Uh, this giant bus shelter that hasn't been updated for a long time. Yeah. It's like kind of decaying, but there's basically like wealth juxtaposed to extreme poverty, trauma and addiction as well. So, so reblogging images, it does feel like pictures of like Ken Park or like abandoned buildings. Yeah. And then also like nice handbag. Yeah. And the Centrelink can't go without that. There's the Medicare center as well. That Centrelink building is a special kind of like, it's, it's more, there's more has a very, and I don't know, I don't know the history of these buildings, but they look very municipal. They like do. Very like 1990s and home improvement, someone's school administration building look. 
Yeah. Kind of thing and I've got to say too, there's a lot of like hospitally things in Moel. So there's a lot of support services. There's like doctor's clinics, mental health support services, law support services, more than Tarelgan and more than in Moe. I feel like that makes up a big portion of that. There's also op shops, like quite a few op shops. So I think that it, it's like kind of a, a wealth and poverty Pinterest board and a growth and decay. decay. I was going to say what it makes me think is like, it's the very, it's like the living articulation of sort of like faded glory, people trying to, it's like a very utilitarian place. Yeah. Like there's a lot of buildings that were originally built for beauty because there was money and yeah. wealth and people are still making the most of those spaces. But now there's just a lot of utility. Like there's a lot there of 60s is. shop fronts that haven't been updated or 80s shop fronts. That's it. That are just built very like, you know, just like a plane, like just like a square. Yeah. But because they're abandoned or not, not occupied, mm. if there's just a sort of, a void or something yeah and again I realize like the irony of like we're sitting on a void with the voids <laughs> it's true it's just like a void yeah the there, whole thing There's, like, there really is feel. I think that's a pretty good description of like the two different vibes so I think it's interesting hearing the idea that people could come here go to an exhibition to try to get up to speed with the fact that it because if you moved here now I don't know if you'd be like oh my god was this like no. at one point I'm like, I really, I, I feel like the gentrification is happening a lot, but I also think it's failing too, because there are the shops that start and then close down. I, I think know that it's typical gentrification. Either. Yeah. Like that's typically when housing prices go up. Right. And that's not happening. Other people move in. I feel like instead of gentrification, we've got people like, again, making the best of it. Yeah. Like people maybe. who are wanting to make a difference. Which maybe. Which kind of distinctly different to again, someone who comes in from somewhere else who's got a bunch of money is like, I'm going to make this. Yeah, true. I think the impact might be the same and that people who are trying to make it better from here, you know, make things better. Yeah. And therefore maybe the prices go up, but it doesn't seem like a typical. I think you're right there, but Um, yeah. But you're right. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. (laughs) To round out, we love asking people what their hopes are. Mm -hmm. We're very hopeful people. Actually, Part mostly I'm despondent and then I like other people's (laughs) hope to just like fill me up. Yeah. I asked David to top up my hope bottle and see how much hope he could give us. So this is what he had to say about what's next. Well, I guess, you know, I just hope that we can uh, that we can generate a future through solar and wind power and, and, and those contemporary technologies that, you know, we've got all the, the wires run from here. Let's, let's embrace it and let's create work and a future for people. What, what role do you feel art plays in that? I think, you know, art kind of can help open other ways of thinking and looking at the world and um, it can kind of point to um, the notion to be inventive and not, not, be, not be stuck in your ways, I guess, is what art can do, can kind of open, open the curtains. Yeah. I mean, your institution here is on the, on the main street in Moorwell where the view used to be of Hazelwood. How do you feel situationally your role of this gallery is in order to help foster that change? I guess um, the director, Beck Cole, and I are really working hard on trying to link what we do to the community and the community's history and the community's interests. But we we want to do that through contemporary art. Um, So we're working hard to kind of make it accessible. So, you know, in this particular suite of exhibitions, we've deliberately linked... You know, quite a contemporary approach by Michael Pryor and his installation that uses um, solar and wind and the powers of the earth, like magnetism, to the history of Hazelwood and the history of this area. It's quite a deliberate uh, link. 
to um, ask questions and create a conversation about other ways. So very much we want to be embedded in that community conversation and we want to drive that community conversation. I want to be driven. <laughs> I was I thinking, drive me, David, now. Tell me what's next. Tell yeah. me what the answers are. I know, how could, sometimes I just fantasise about, like, instead of this being a wicked problem, it's just, like, a super easy one. And we're like, you know what? It's all fine. And they're just going to do this. And, like, here's a check from the government, Josie. <laughs> <laughs> that would that be great. that doesn't seem like that's what's going to happen. No, it doesn't. It's, I think it's going to drag on for a little bit too long. <laughs> Maybe the, you know, crushing pressure of climate change will finally make Maybe. it up a little bit. I don't Maybe. know. So that was our episode about art. And yeah. The exhibition. And I hope that if you want a bit of, like, a visual journey through Hazelwood and the exhibition. So unfortunately that exhibition has ended. Uh, so we didn't finish this episode. Because COVID. Yeah. So we'd like to thank the Big C, which is also now known as COVID. <laughs> but good news is the Literary Regional Gallery is a freaking institution and it's on the corner and it has so many cool things coming up. You can follow them on all of their social media platforms. We'll put the links in the show notes. And you can go and check out some art and experience our very accessible uh, exhibitions that will, you know, open your mind to new possibilities. And I've, I've just, on that access note, I think that the gallery is completely accessible to people in wheelchairs. They even yep. have a lift to get you to the upper realms and uh, ramps and things. Their bathrooms are disability friendly, so it is an accessible space. And the people that work there are really informative. So if you need to know something about the art, you can go and ask. Yes. Um, I think that's the other thing we should say, like sometimes institutions can feel institutionally yeah institutionally gallery is really committed to sort of like breaking down that accessibility so you can go and you can ask questions and feel engaged yeah not feel like it's not for you also they have wine and cheese nights occasionally so keep going social media for those yeah. we should probably do a special thanks as well to david and the team so we should also thank gabriella duffy and rebecca dalty for all their help in giving us information about this episode and also a big shout out to the Mowell historical society facebook group because it's always useful and i love their work Thank you again to the Latrobe Regional Gallery, David and the team, for being so generous with your time. You can find our resources in the show notes for this episode. The music for Coalface is by Anonymous420 and Loyalty Freak Music. The series is written, edited and produced by Josie Hess and Stephanie Sabrinskis. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Instagram at ColfacePod or send us an email to ColfacePodcast at gmail.com. Look out for the next episode of Coalface. Coalface.